Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode is the first in a new series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Jamie Simone, AICP. Jamie is a planner who has done some really interesting stuff, from managing one of the hippest business districts in Chicago, to form-based coding, to opening and managing the 606, an elevated trail and park system in Chicago. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Courtney. Now, all planning superheroes have an origin story. What's yours? Uh, Well, I'm afraid mine's not all that exciting, but I guess some superheroes don't have exciting origin stories. Um, I started off with a bachelor's in social work and quickly realized that it wasn't um, active enough for me, that it required far more patience than my 20-something self had at the time. So I started to look into other professions that would still have some context or some association with the social good, which was really attractive to me and which is where I find my passion. Um, And so I started looking at graduate schools, figuring that was the way to change professions. And so planning kind of found me as I was looking at um, master's in social work programs or public administration. Um, But I think looking back, it's always been in line with my interests and the way I see the world. Is there anything specific about your training as a social worker that helps you as a planner? Yeah, I think um, the best way to summarize that is uh, the word empathy. So when you're studying social work, when you're in social services, particularly the kind of work that I did, you practice empathy a lot in your role playing with people, um, in the way you approach the work. And I see that commitment to empathy being really useful in the kind of work that I do, particularly working with communities. So if you can approach a community with a level of empathy that that their feelings and their attitudes and opinions are real and important to them, and that your job as a professional to try, is to try and understand things from their perspective, maybe help them see things in a different way, but always respecting their point of view, I think that's a really good starting point um, in working with people and the things that affect them most in their day-to-day life. I'm also a big believer in empathy. I guess I always thought that people who were empathetic found their way to planning, but do you think people can learn to be empathetic? I think so. Um, I believe you can teach an old dog new tricks, so I'm not sure it's something that you find on your own, but I think if you practice it, um, like I said, when I was in undergraduate school, we did role-playing situations constantly, and in every social service job that I've had, that's a big part of the job and training. Um, But I think if you remind yourself that you need to not consider yourself the expert in everything, that each person, even in your own personal life, comes to you from a different background, a different perspective, um, and that those perspectives are valid and that they need to be respected. And you'll never really know what it's like to be in another person's shoes, but you can listen to them and think about their situation and try and imagine what things look like from their eyes as a way to help you better understand their situation and then also forge a better team moving forward in whatever that might be, again, whether that's personally or professionally. Interesting. I know you've worked in both the consulting realm and the not-for-profit, and you've managed uh, 
managed consultants, not only been a consultant on some pretty high-profile projects. What are some keys to success in the client-consultant relationship that you've found? Um, I think communication is critical, which sounds like an obvious answer, but I think on the part of the consultants, um, it's a lot of listening and paying attention to the details and not just listening to the client, but listening to whoever the constituency is for a project. Um, And I think for the clients, they also have to be good listeners to the consultants in the community as well, but they have to be good at sharing information. So communication isn't just about listening. It's also about what you say and how you um, convey information. And so as the client, the consultant is looking to you to be somewhat of an expert on the project, whatever it might be. And so you have to be disciplined about sharing with them as much information as you can and keeping them up to date as things change. And then as the client, or excuse me, as the consultant, you need to be prepared to shift and change based on new information. So that's why I say communication is key because communication is a two-way street and it's back and forth between people. Um, And if you don't have good communication as a client consultant team, you're not going to end up with a good outcome. Planners are kind of unique in that if you were to compare them to other people who provide professional services, there's always a third uh, component. There's not just the client and consultant, but there's always going to be the community client in addition to whoever is actually paying the bills. And that's not something we share with even uh, some of our allied professionals, but it's so crucial that you understand that communication piece early on. There was a, you're reminding me that there was an APA Illinois awards ceremony a few years ago, and someone was winning a, an award, and, and she, in her acceptance speech, she talked about how unique the field of planning is because we expect the public, the community, to be our shoulder-to-shoulder partners in creating the plans, and how that doesn't really exist elsewhere, that you would never expect a surgeon would never expect a member of the public to be standing next to them and advising them during the surgical process. And so I do think that's a really unique part of planning, that you have to be very comfortable that you have a level of expertise, but the people who are the experts in the places where you work are the people who live and work and are there all the time, and you have to be very comfortable with that and not feel challenged by it, but accept it as part of your job and part of what makes your work successful. Speaking of awards, you managed the Wicker Park Bucktown Master Plan, which won an APA National Award for Outreach. I happen to live in the Bucktown neighborhood, and I'll never forget seeing a bus ad on the CTA proposing cat parks as a clever way to get people thinking about the neighborhood's future and an effort to get them to attend uh, open houses. What are some of your favorite memories from that project? That ad campaign is definitely one of my favorite memories. It was really funny and got your attention. Glad to hear it. Um, But, again, thinking about from the planner's perspective, even from the very start with that process, we put together an RFP and then got proposals back from consultants. And we got probably 20 or so, and I read through all of them, of course. And some of them were higher quality than others, as expected. Um, But the proposal from the firm that we chose just jumped off the paper at me. And I wasn't expecting that, having been a consultant and written a bunch of proposals and seen other people's proposals. I figured they were pretty run-of-the-mill, that you they would basically say the same thing. Everybody does an existing conditions analysis and talks about implementation strategies. Um, But this one was so different, and the way it was written was different. And even in the proposal, they captured... 
the vibe of the neighborhood and the feeling of the neighborhood in a way that the other proposals didn't. And I think that's that was an interesting lesson for me. And I think a good thing for other consultants to consider is how you tailor um, the proposal, even beyond the normal stuff that you would tailor, but how you really demonstrate to the client that you're already paying attention to what they're asking you to do. Um, and then in the process of choosing a consultant, there were about five of us on the committee reviewing the proposals and you know we were able to narrow it down to two at the end and we had probably a four hour long conversation about who to choose in the end and we were down to a local firm and a firm from out of town and that was how the committee was split about like who should we go with and ultimately we went with the out-of-towners um, a little bit concerned about what that would mean but in the end it really was the right choice so for me it was a good learning experience in that you don't necessarily have to have local people create your plans that sometimes that is really beneficial but sometimes you want somebody with a different point of view whose background is a better fit for your place um, and again going back to what I said earlier about communications as long as you feel you've got a consultant team that you can work well with and that um, you feel you can communicate with uh, I think that's probably more important than where they lay their head at night um, and sometimes it's worth taking a risk on a firm that you're not as familiar with or that doesn't have a lot of work product in your city because maybe you'll find something really spectacular and you'll raise the bar and set things on a new course. So flash forward from the Wicker Park Bucktown Master Plan, the 606 has also been an award-winning project and garnered national attention as an elevated uh, trail and park system here in Chicago. It took over 10 years and opened last year. It's been a success by every measure and beyond anyone's imagination. What would you share with other cities considering similar projects? Well, I get asked about that a lot because there are sister projects, I would call them, around the country in varying states of um, implementation. Some are in plan phases, some are just a neighborhood dream, and some of them are under construction. I think for anyone, whether it's a community member or um, government officials who are looking at um, a large infrastructure transformation project, patience is really important. So you mentioned that the 606 took over 10 years to go from idea to an actual park that you can experience. And during those 10 years, there was a lot of question about whether it was ever going to happen. People doubted it would ever happen. Some people were totally steadfast and stuck with it. and. As planners, I think we recognize that having a project go from plan to completion in 10 years is pretty remarkable, especially given the complexity of the project. It goes through four neighborhoods. It has 38 bridges um, you know, and, and just lots of other components that make it complex that we as planners may know that, but community members may not know that. And so doing what you can to keep a steady pace of activity and interest in a project is really important to helping people understand that these things do take a long time, but we're going to stick with it. And I give um, the local people, from particularly from Friends of the Bloomingdale Trail, a lot of credit because they were the ones that kept that drumbeat going steadily for 10 years. And without them, I'm not sure that there would have been as much support for the project or there would have been uh, as ready of an audience when things really um, got going as the city got more funding to move the project along. So I think my advice would be take the long view, realize that it's not going to, any big project like that's not going to happen in a three to five year timeline, that you have to give yourself more time and you have to be creative about who your partners should be, um, be creative about funding, um, 
And I think lastly, not to shy away from the people who maybe aren't on board with the project right away, um, that you have to work really hard to understand their concerns and figure out if you can address their concerns, because if you don't, they can um, they can get organized and, and make it more difficult to see your project through. And maybe, maybe there's something in the opposition that you can incorporate into the project to make it better and uh, make people feel better about the project. Did you the larger team end up winning some folks over? Is that what I hear? We did, yes, definitely. And it was because we were diligent with people and, um, you know, we worked in the private part, public-private partnership. We were the private partners, so we were able to approach the community in a different way than I think public organizations can. So anytime anybody called and wanted to talk, we made ourselves available. And if we needed to bring someone from the construction team or someone from a government agency, we would do that. Um, but even when ultimately the answer was, no, we can't do what you're asking, or I hear what you're saying, but it's actually going to be done this way, whatever the case may be, I think for people on the receiving end of the no or sorry, can't do that, at least felt validated that their concern was heard, that it was listened to, that we did our best to try and work it out, and we came back to them with an answer. I think people often get frustrated um, when they you know, you, you, everyone's had this experience. You send the email to the info account with kind of your eyes rolling because you're like, I'm never going to hear back from this. But we worked really hard to, to respond to all of those phone calls and emails and other concerns from people. And I think even the people who had uh, lingering concerns would at least know that their concerns were heard and considered and people were doing their very best to address whatever the issue was. Was there a moment where you felt like now we're rolling? This has kind of the spark where you or others could see that this was going to become reality? I'm asking because I think a lot of projects live or die um, based on leadership. It could be informal leadership or formal all the way mm -hmm. up to the mayor. So my theory is not knowing um, that maybe that was the moment. But even if that's not the answer, I'm curious <laughs> if you had a moment like that. Um, I think when the city was successful in winning funding to do some of the preliminary design and engineering work. That was a moment because I don't think cities or municipalities put themselves out there with funding to do work if they're not somewhat committed to seeing things through. But then when they won the second big chunk of federal funding to build the project, that was a moment. And for the general public, that might not look like a big moment because it's just some paperwork being shuffled back and forth saying, yes, you've won the grant. But for again, for, for planners, I think that people re realize that that's a big moment to get the funding to actually build something. Um, and also, I was just talking with some colleagues. We were looking at photographs from the groundbreaking of the 606, um, which was in August of 2013. And there were even people that day who kind of pulled me to the side and said, is this really happening? <laughs> um, and of course, it was a ceremonial groundbreaking. So, you know, it, it wasn't like there was anything really to see that day other than people in a photo op with some shovels, which is the way these projects start. But um, to me, that was a moment where I realized that even people who had been following the project for years and understood how these things come together were still skeptical because, again, it had been about 10 years at that point where people had been talking and dreaming about this thing. And I think for some people it was like beyond their wildest imaginations that would actually happen. Um, so, you know, those ceremonial groundbreakings, I think, you do them for the photo op, you do them for the press release to show people progress. And they're important, though, for people to understand and for, for governments and other people to send a message that they're serious about doing the work that they said they would do. 
I'm someone who tries to really pay attention to language. Um, I know it's not unique to planners, the, the fallacies of jargon, but even beyond that, uh, like when I was doing neighborhood-level economic development work, the real estate folks might call the grocery-anchored strip center the asset. They would refer to it as the asset, and mm-hmm. that's not something anyone in the <clears throat> neighborhood um would ever use as far as a term that was the store or that was the mall or that was where they caught the bus. And it makes me think about um, the way real estate projects, planning projects, anything that actually gets constructed can mean different things to different people. I think what's unique about the 606 is some people saw that as a park, some people saw that as a place to jog, uh, people probably saw it as an infrastructure project, a planning project, a park department project, a planning project. Um, I'm wondering what you learned along those lines about how when something gets created or constructed, the values and attachment uh, people assign to it. Hmm, That's interesting. Yes, all of that. I mean, people talk about the 606 as all of those things and an alternative transportation route. and a landscape oasis and urban oasis and all these other things. And I think for a project of the scale of the 606, what you realize is that it's different things to different people. And so as a person working professionally on the project, you have to figure out how to manage those expectations and figure out what it can be. So can it effectively be all those things? Or is there a way to um, talk about it in a way that allows for some flexibility in how the space is used um, without alienating people? Um, and I think it also helps, again, when you're working out professionally to have an agreed manner of talking about a project so that as the people working on the project, you're clear about what the intention of the project is. So, you know, it, it feels a little... Um, trite, but even having talking points that people share who speak professionally on behalf of the project so that everyone's on the same sheet of singing from the same sheet of music is really important. Sometimes you can't control that, but um, this is where I think community process is useful, though, too, because in that process, you can ask people, how do you see yourself using a a, um, park and trail system? How do you see your community using it? What are your aspirations? What are your hopes for this space? and being clear about what can or can't be accommodated in the space. So for something like the 606, for example, it's only 30 feet wide on the top. And so for people who were hoping for a soccer field in the neighborhood, that wasn't going to be the place for it. And so communicating that clearly and saying, that's a great idea. Yes, your neighborhood needs more parks or more parks, more soccer fields when you look at the maps and see what else is out there. Um, But saying very clearly, but that won't happen here and here's why. So what other kind of ways do you see yourself using this space? Um, and that continues now that people refer to it uh, as alter- alternative transportation, which it is. They love to run on it. It's a great running path. Um, this is deviating a little bit from your question, but one of the more interesting things we've learned about the 606 has to do with usage. So in the planning phases, we all thought it's going to be heavy activity in the mornings and the early afternoons when people are commuting back and forth to work, probably busy on Saturday and Sunday mornings when people are out exercising or walking places. 
but we have a couple counters out on the trail and what we found is that the highest use is actually in the after dinner hours between like you know 5:30 and 7:30 8pm in the of course in the warmer months is when we see the most use but people are using it for like their evening stroll uh, which I think is so interesting because in places in Italy or Spain or other places in Europe, that's kind of a natural phenomenon that people are out looking and to be seen. And that's naturally happening here on this trail, too. And I'm not sure that that's culturally in the United States something that we do in parks and in plazas the way that you see in Europe. But I think it's interesting that given that space and that opportunity, people just do that. It's something that they want to do. Um, and I, I just I love that. I love the thought of like the the evening stroll, waving to your neighbor, seeing who's out, running into people. Excellent. How about the opposite end? What's the wildest thing that's happened since it <laughs> opened that you can share with us? Um, well, I'll share before opening, when, bef- long before the project was under construction, there, were, at, there was at least one, if not two, abandoned pianos found up on the trail or on the rail bed at the time, which I find amazing because... Um, it wasn't that easy to get up there, and you know how difficult it is to move a piano, so I don't know how people got them up there, but they, they were up there. Um, one eventually ended up on fire. Um, so that's some of the crazy stuff that happened before the trail was open. Um, I did see uh, somebody drove a car up on the trail, which is not supposed to happen. The, the I don't know why somebody would do that. People were theorizing that somebody took a wrong turn and ended up on the trail. Not a good thing to have happen. I think it was late in the evening hours, so nobody was at risk of being hurt. Um, but it's pretty normal stuff up there. People running, jogging, biking, skateboarding, rollerblading. Um, it was built to meet ADA standards for the, um, the, the hills, the, um, the grade. And so people are up there in wheelchairs um, of all different ability levels. Another interesting thing that we've seen is that um, some local organizations in the neighborhood are um, creating walking groups. So people get together and they walk on the trail for health. Um, so I digress from your question, but um, I think the other thing that probably was predictable but is happening quicker than I would have imagined is that people are seeing a, um, a relationship between a, a trail like the 606 and health outcomes. So these walking groups, when I'm up there, one of my favorite things to see is a person who looks like maybe they're new to exercising. Um, I don't know how to describe it, but maybe they they look a little self-conscious or maybe they don't have like all the gear you would expect a seasoned um, exerciser in. But it's just really exciting to see them out there doing it and being active. And I often wonder, like, where was this person exercising before the trail was here? And the answer is maybe they weren't or maybe they were out running on the sidewalks in their community. But I like to think that it's encouraging people to get out and exercise in a way that people don't exercise on the sidewalk, that there's a, for me anyway, there's a big mental barrier between like putting your gear on and running on the sidewalk and having to stop at stoplights and pass your neighbors and, you know, get around people on the sidewalks and just feel like you're in a much more um, public but personal space with people looking out their windows. I don't know. There's just a different feeling when you're out running on the sidewalk than when you put on your gear and you strap on your shoes and you go up on a trail where everybody's there doing the same thing. So I think it's a more welcoming place for people to exercise, even people who may be new to running or walking for exercise. It's funny. um, You're making me think of a story I heard recently. I'm from a small town and we have very much a dead mall. And a friend of mine's father just retired he was a physician for many years in in the town and you know as 
might be expected. Their kids moved away. They have grandkids. But the thing that is actually causing them to look at leaving the town is the mall closing. Why? Because they are mall walkers. Mm -hmm. And um, I just love uncovering those details because it helps you become a better planner to understand people's motivations, um, how people make decisions, and why. I don't think anyone would have stopped and thought about that. They wouldn't have been surprised if a retired physician moved out of town because his children were out of town. But the, the straw that actually caused it is the mall is uh, being converted and he feels like they have nowhere to take a walk. So I think it's something for all of us to consider. Well, I think it points to um, something I think planners have to be prepared for, which is to be surprised mm. that closing a mall, you wouldn't think, oh, now people aren't going to have a place to walk. But if you take the time to talk to somebody and say, you know, how do you use the mall? I mean, you just don't even think that that would be a question you would ask in a planning process. But you uncover these things. And like you're saying, if you knew that in advance, you might then as a municipality think about, well, how are we going to replace that? Can we replace that? Or I'm not sure that this is possible with an old mall, but is there a way to reuse the space or open it up for a different purpose? You know, we think about reuse of old urban infrastructure like railroads, but uh, as more malls close and as other big public assets close, it's, I think, important to think about how, what kind of second life they can have. Is it appropriate and how could that be accomplished? You mentioned Europe before, and I know you've traveled around to a fair amount of the planet. Which cities are your favorite and why? Well, I think my number one would be London. Um, and I, I, just, I love everything about London. The tube is amazing. You can get everywhere. I like the old charm of the architecture, but there's so much new architecture going up. I love the density of it. Um, it's easy to get around. Uh, it's interesting um, and it's exciting. Um, I love the atmosphere. I, there's, I love everything about London. I've, if I ever were to move to another city, that would be the only place that I would pick up and move, I think, which won't happen. But And then I think a close second would be Barcelona. And again, the vibe, the feeling, the vitality of Barcelona, the weather is awesome. And in Barcelona, there's also a mix of like really old and really new. And even from a planner's perspective, um, the um, I'm not going to think of the planner's name. That Cerda? Yes, thank mm -hmm. you. Who planned the, the quote-unquote newer part of Barcelona with all those interesting intersections and the way that part of the city is really cool, as is the old part. Um, I think those are my two favorite. So you're not only a planner, but you're also a parent. I know that you grew up in the suburbs, but I read recently that you've committed to raising your kids in the city. Why is that important to you? Um, well, I have two kids. They're seven and almost four. And I think it's, for me, it's two things. It's important for me personally to live in the city for all the things that I value. And I've thought a lot about whether it's fair to impose those kind of values on my kids. But I think anybody raising children shares their values with their kids and hopes their kids grow up to have some of the same values. Um, and I think it's important to be in a place that has all the things that cities do, diverse populations, 
um, a real sense of shared space that sure you might have your own house and your own bedroom but life in the city is lived outside in public in democratic space where everybody comes together um, whether it's at the park at the end of our block or whether it's um, when we go when we venture downtown for a festival or to another neighborhood for a festival I think all the things that we enjoy doing as a family are outside of our house. We get stir crazy in the house. I can't wait for winter to be over to get out of the house. The kids can you know, run around and get out of our hair and we can all be out and see other people and see what's going on and smell the different foods in different neighborhoods and try different foods and uh, you know, go to the beach and see other people there. And it's not that those things don't exist in other places, but they're always there in the city. You don't have to do much to seek it out. Um, and I, I think those things are important. I think, um, I think, like I said, you can find those things in the suburbs. As you said, I grew up in the suburbs, so it's not like I was totally sheltered from all those things. But when we wanted a different experience, we went to other places. Um, and I, it just feels like in the city it's more readily available. And my kids can do things like go to really cool and interesting summer camps in a way that I think when you don't live in the city, there's just not as much available. You know, you have everything you want here, and you can expose your kids to that. And then as adults, too, we can continue to be a part of that. And for me, it's intellectually stimulating. It's interesting. I like to be involved in my community and in my neighborhood. Um, and I hope to instill that in my kids. Earth Day is coming up. I signed up to be a captain at my local park to do an Earth Day cleanup. I'm going to recruit you for it, by the way. And I hope my kids can be there and see that it's important to be a part of that and do those things. Um, so that's that's my goal and my hope for raising children in the city. Turning back to the field of planning for a minute, what do you think the field is getting right these days? What are you inspired uh, to be either hearing about or personally participating in the field of planning? The one thing that comes to mind that I've seen more emphasis on lately is social justice, which is not a new concept and not new to planners. But as I see it, it's rising to a level where all planners are more aware of it now and more aware of how important it is as part of our work. And again, there are a lot of planners who have already been focused on this, but I think as a field, we're taking it on more in ways I hadn't seen before. So there are funders out there who are looking at how they can um, support projects that are looking at equity and encouraging more equitable, equitable development in TODs, transit-oriented development, or other large development projects. And I think communities have always been pushing for that, and I'm hoping that now... Um, elected officials and other government representatives are more receptive to it because, as I said, I think I'm seeing it at a, a different level. It's more um, in the fiber of everything that we're doing, like I said, in a way I didn't see you know, 12 years ago when I started in the field. So I'm encouraged by that. I think it's important. I've seen more and more emphasis on community engagement and beyond the typical come to the library on Tuesday night from 6 to 8. Um, I'm not a 
big believer in everything going online either and and solely relying on social media, but I think a mix of the two is important. And also getting out of the library and finding different ways of engaging people. Um, I'm really encouraged by that. And so being part of that, working on the 606 and these other projects that we've talked about has been really gratifying. And I think as people push more for thinking creatively about how you engage communities and what that means, and that it means different things in different communities. Um, I remember talking with somebody recently who was working on a rail trail conversion, and she was asking me what they could do if I had any recommendations for what to do with their community meetings to make them more successful. And it sounds silly, but like food is always a good way to bring people together. And thinking about if you can provide childcare at your public meetings. Huge. So if you have a meeting, I'm a very practical person, as you know. So if you're going to have a meeting from 5 to 7, I want to know if I should eat beforehand or not. And can I bring my kids? And not can I bring my kids and hope that they're quiet in the back of the room and maybe I have to walk out four times when they start to scream or whatever. But is there somebody there who I can trust who can you know be in the next room playing with the kids while we're in the meeting? Um, so one's simple, just give people food. And the other is a little bit more complicated, but... I think if we want people engaged and we want them to feel welcome, that those two things go a long way to welcoming families and welcoming people who maybe aren't the usual suspects that come to public meetings. Excellent point. I'm wondering if um, there's anything else you'd like to see more of, things that we're still not getting right in the field of planning and that um, you think should be happening. I think we do a decent job of coordinating work across our disciplines, but I think there's always room for improvement when you're talking about planning as something separate from transportation, as something separate from housing, um, as something separate from recreation or open space planning. That, to me, planners, what we do is really all about quality of life. And I take a really broad view of that. So that's being able to live in your house and have a grocery store nearby, be able to get to your place of employment relatively easy, uh, having a place to send your kids to school, if I didn't already say that, um, having a park nearby, um, knowing that there are good employment opportunities at, a, at all levels, whether that's your teenager who's trying to find a job for the first time or whether that's your parents who are a few years from retirement but still want to work and everybody in between and knowing that there are solid, reliable public services. Um, so to me, that's, where, that's what planners do. That's what we do. That's our charge that, again, we, we look at the public and whatever public means, and we try to work to improve how people live in public. And I would like to see us do a better job of, of not just, I hate to use the word silo, but not just working in our silos. So. You know, I've been working in open space for the last five and a half years. But it's not enough for me to say, well, I work on parks, so I, I don't know what to say about schools or transportation. Um, I may not be totally expert in those areas, but I certainly know what they mean, and I, I know what they do to influence public space, and I know what public space can do to influence those other things. So I would like to see us think and work more comprehensively together in a collaborative way. And not that every plan should address every last issue, but it should certainly contemplate them and um, be wise about how what you're doing has impacts on things outside of what you consider to be your purview. So every planner 
has at least one example of trying to explain what they do, whether it's to a family member or a friend or a neighbor. What's the best story you have about trying to explain to someone what a planner is? (laughs) Well, the first thing that comes to mind is when you're like, if you're looking on a job board or whatever and and you put in planner and the first thing that comes up is financial planner and then maybe event planner. Um, And I find it so challenging to even just understand what's out there in our field, even when I'm not looking for a job, just like what's out there, what are people doing? There are a few sites where you can narrow that down, but I always find that interesting and a challenge. Um, I, again, this doesn't totally answer your question, but I'm, I'm sure my kids don't totally understand what an urban planner is, but they understand when we drive under the Bloomingdale Trail in the 606, they point up and go, Mom! Is that the 606? Yes. And then, like, if we're in parks, they'll be like, you know, my mom built this park. It's just kind of a funny anecdote. But um, I remember this job and my previous job when I was um, working on the master plan that we were talking about. When I first started both jobs, people asked me, like, what do you do all day? I don't understand what you're doing. It's like, oh, my God, do you want me to show you my calendar? I've got six meetings about this and then three phone calls about that. Um, so I, I sometimes struggle with communicating what it is that we do. But I think when you start to explain to people that, again, planners are focused on cities and, you know, not necessarily big cities, but municipalities and suburban areas, and we work to improve the quality of life for people, that that's a good place to start. And then you have to figure out if that's enough of an explanation or if they need more or if they are interested in hearing more, and then you can talk about your part of the field and how what you do contributes to a better quality of life for people. It's kind of like when your kid asks you a question and you have to see just how much of an answer they actually need. I kind of approach it that way. Makes sense. What's your hidden talent? (laughs) Well, I do sing, which is maybe not that hidden because I sing in a group that performs, so it's not like I only sing in the shower. But I've been singing since I was about four or five. I had my first solo when I was four years old at Midnight Mass. I um, sang Away in a Manger at Midnight Mass. I was five. My parents let me stay up late to go and sing. And I've been singing ever since. So again, not so hidden, but it's a talent. I crochet. Maybe that's a hidden talent. Oh, I've just started painting. So what I've learned is I have my own hidden talent that I'm actually fairly decent at drawing and painting. So that's been fun. I took a class at the Park District, and uh, I'm working in oils. So, Would you sing something for us now? No. (laughs) I won't. I had to try. Should I plug my next fire concert? (laughs) Maybe there's a planning hymn that you sing to yourself. (laughs) Um, What's your favorite planning acronym? Um, I don't know if I have a favorite planning acronym, but I've been, I've heard myself say a lot lately to people, nothing ventured, nothing gained, which is not necessarily planning related, but I do think it's an important uh, mantra for people to have in mind that you don't get anywhere if you don't try. If you don't try new things or test out a new experience, you'll never know what you're good at. So I suppose finding out that I'm actually decent at drawing and painting is a little bit of a nothing ventured, nothing gained thing. Um, But even professionally, if you don't 
think about different things that you want to try or experience or stick your toe in the water and see what happens, you'll never find something new and interesting for yourself. I think, especially as adults, we are afraid to try things. We're afraid of being embarrassed or humiliated that we're not going to be good at it or that we're going to fail. And I think that we have to push ourselves to try and that failure is okay and you learn from your failures and it's the way you get you move past a failure that says more about you than the fact that you failed. If you can find grace in failure and just move on with your head held high, that to me says more about a person than the actual failure. Are there any planners out there in spite, who inspire you or um, anybody you think we should talk to next? Such a good question. Um, can be living... Dead, but you're probably not allowed to say Jane Jacobs. I would, yeah, that no, uh, I won't say Jane Jacobs. Um, I'm in this is, I'll have to think about specific names, but I'm inspired by the people who don't consider themselves planners but who are doing really amazing work. So, I have colleagues at the Chicago Park District, for example, who don't do planning work, don't consider themselves planners, and yet are conducting themselves as planners and carrying out the work of planners every day in a way that I find so admirable. Um, And I've found that in a lot of my colleagues who work in programming or who are at the fringes of planning who just understand what it is that we're about as planners and just go out and do it, whether it's working in communities, listening the way they listen and the way they incorporate what they're doing into their work uh that inspires me i think that's fantastic perspective maybe we need like honorary planners or something but i love that idea jamie i really wanted to thank you for your time today i learned a lot about you as a planner some new perspectives on the field and just appreciate your insights thanks for having me Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org forward slash podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.